Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning, everybody. Um, when Matt asked me to preach this time, he, uh, he also mentioned that I could give uh, an update on, on Youth Unlimited here in Chilliwack. Um, so in September, this church was, was uh, kind enough, gracious enough to kind of commission us as one of their local missionaries here in Chilliwack. And Youth Unlimited is an organization that works with um, at-risk and vulnerable youth uh, throughout all of Canada and the Lower Mainland here. So um, we're just starting things up here in Chilliwack. Um, and, and connecting and laying the foundation, um, the, the spiritual prayer foundation and the, the financial foundation. Um, I've been involved with, uh, with uh, Pastor John uh, in the hot breakfasts on, uh, at, the, at, the, um, at the Ed Center here in Chilliwack, connecting there, connecting with, uh, with other churches and other Christian leaders in the community and other agencies in the community. And so in that time, I've, I found out some interesting things about Chilliwack, um, Two interesting things that I think uh, are part of God's providence and then how they connect. Um, one is that the vulnerable youth in Chilliwack, it's kind of a unique situation. Uh, the community I was serving in prior to this for 10 years was, was Richmond. And in, in Richmond, there's a school district of about 22,000 kids. And in the alternative school there, there's about 23 kids out of the 22,000. So about 1%. Here in Chilliwack, we have a school district of about 13,000. And at the Ed Center, the alternative school, we have 180 students. So look at that difference right there. Um, talking to the drug and alcohol counselors that work with, with youth here in town, um, there's, there's, there's an interesting um, way that, that people who deal with addictions um, come, come along that path. The path that most youth that end up addicted uh, to drugs follow is, is typically around age 11 and 12. They start with pot. Um, they move on as, as the years go on through the psychedelic drugs, ecstasy, LSD, um, and end up addicted in the end to what they call one of the big three, either, either crack, meth, or heroin. Um, but in Chilliwack, we have a different situation. So it starts out the same with, with kids trying pot at around 11 or 12, um, but at age 14, they're on meth. Um, and they skip kind of everything else in between. Uh, it has to do with the situation of what's available on the streets, what drugs are available, and what they're exposed to, and what they're offered, and that sort of thing. Uh, another sad thing that I've come across in, in looking into the situation of vulnerable youth in Chilliwack is, is that uh, girls at Chilliwack Middle School, so this is grades 7 to 9, are being recruited into the sex trade. Um, at that young age. And, and what, is it, what is it that makes young teens go into a life of drugs? What is it that makes young teens vulnerable to fall prey uh, to being recruited into, into, into that industry? Um, it's, it's because they've had brokenness in their lives. It's because they, they don't have meaning. It's because they haven't been told that they have worth. They haven't been given worth. Um, and they need that. The statistics show... Uh, studies show that vulnerable youth um, that make a connection with one healthy, caring adult, 70% of them succeed and are able to, to get out of, the, out of the situation that they're in. Um, so here's, here's the other interesting fact about Chilliwack that's very positive. 
there's a disproportionately large number compared to the general population across Canada of Jesus-loving adults. And I think those two things might go hand in hand. Did you know this? Chilliwack actually held, about 15 years ago, not anymore, but, but held the Guinness Book of World Records for the most number of churches per capita. We, ha- we, ha- we used to hold that record here. And I think maybe, like if you think about God's providence, maybe that's part of it. There's all these Jesus-loving adults and there's all these kids that need, that need care, that need love from adults. So... Um, in Chilliwack, you have the Cyrus Center. You have uh, Pearl Ministries, which is a new ministry that's, that's coming up to help girls and women that are in the sex trade come out of that. So you have these ministries, which are amazing and awesome and serving the kids uh, and the young people that have already fallen through the cracks, um, right? And that's called intervention. There's also something called prevention. So that's what Youth Unlimited wants to focus on. We want to focus on prevention. So we want to work with the churches and connect um, um, the, the, the Jesus-loving adults with these youth. Because if you look at the numbers in Chilliwack, if, if every Jesus-loving adult would, just, would connect with just one vulnerable youth, each of those vulnerable youth would have seven caring adults in their lives. So this can be done. So the way we're looking at getting this done is we're going to try to create spaces where we can have teams of volunteers connect with youth in, in a safe setting. If you could throw up the slide... And this is how we plan on doing it. Looks like a fire truck, but if you go to the second one, it pops up and out. Um, and this is a mobile drop-in. So what we'd, we'd do is um, we would have teams of, of staff and volunteers that would go with the mobile drop-in into a neighborhood. And, and ideally, uh, the volunteers would be, would be Christians from that neighborhood, from churches in that neighborhood. Um, and then we would connect with the kids um, and, and that's the way that we could get, get those kids connected with caring, loving adults um, and being mentored and being uh, reached for Christ. We, uh, we, we had one running in, uh, in Abbotsford for 12 years, and it worked well. The problem was it, the, the, the vehicle it was built on was, a, was an old English double-decker bus that had uh, 750,000 kilometers on it. And so it spent, it spent almost as much time getting fixed as it did out in the community, um, but it was, it was used four nights a week uh, in, in Mission and in Abbotsford um, when we had it, and this, this vehicle is what we're working towards, so uh, we're fundraising towards that and connecting and networking about uh, trying to get this done, and then we'll be, we'll be putting together teams of volunteers uh, to, to have that ministry roll out. So if you could pray for that, if you... Um, if you have any connections, if you think anybody who might know anything about this that could be of a help, uh, this is what we're working towards. So thank you. So we're continuing along in our, um, in our sermon series through the Gospel of John. Um, do you ever feel a little overwhelmed uh, about what's going on in the world today? Even though some of those stats, some of those situations I just mentioned here in Chilliwack. There seems to be so much negative news, doom and gloom. And the division of opinions from the experts of what needs to be done is deep. The divide is huge. On one side, uh, this, you know, the people on this side will say, this is what we need to do. And if you follow those guys' plan, it's utter doom. But then the people on this side say the exact same thing. No, no, this is what we need to do. If you follow their idea, it's utter doom. And it doesn't leave 
uh, much room for hope. So much of what's going on in the world these days seems to us to be going against what we believe God would want. I personally have to limit how much news I watch or online articles I read because it can start to weigh me down. The weight of it all can start to chip away at the hope in my life. And we need to have hope in our lives. We have the hope of Christ in our lives. But we have reason to hope. We have a great reason for hope. Even when things look bad and are bad, we have the assurance that we can have hope. Lisa and I and our family, we like to go hiking a lot. Um, But I grew up quite klutzy and fell over a lot. Um, So when I hike, I typically look at the ground and, 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 and strategically place every footstep. And often, Lisa is like, oh, look at that there. Oh, look at this over here. And then I look up and I realize as I'm focusing on every step and worried about every step, I'm missing what's going on around me. I'm missing the big picture. And in a sense, letting the worries and all the big bad situations that are going on in the world can draw our focus to those things, you know, because so, we're worried we don't want to fall or we're worried about what might happen and we can lose sight of God's big picture and that we've been given. We have assurance that God is sovereign. We have assurance that God has a good plan. We have assurance that God's good plan prevails. Our text today is John eleven forty five to 57, and it follows right after uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Many Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, Jesus, did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So this passage in John ends the description of Jesus' public ministry. 
The next 10 chapters, so this is 11 chapters, the next 10 chapters recounts the events leading up to and including his death and resurrection. We see in this passage that when Jesus acts, it divides the crowd. Because who Jesus is demands that a choice is made. Who Jesus is demands a choice to be made. In verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So the first response, when we see who Jesus is, is belief in him. Now, it's not just belief about him, but it's belief in him. Growing up, I was raised in a Christian family, and in grade four, I was put into a Christian school. So at church, at home, and at school, I was taught the word, and I was taught about Jesus. And so I grew up knowing about and believing about Jesus. But I didn't believe in him. I didn't put my faith in him. There's a difference between believing about and believing in, putting your trust in. It's kind of like bungee jumping, right? Like I know and I understand there's a whole bunch of physics and science involved with how they design that cord. And they're going to make sure that that cord can hold my weight and it can hold people that are much heavier than me. And I know that the straps that they put around your ankles are designed in the same manner. It's designed to hold my weight so I can go bungee jumping. I also know that they have insurance and those insurance companies are going to make sure that that bungee cord and those straps are going to hold tight because they don't want to pay out insurance claims on injuries. And I believe, I believe that that bungee cord can hold me up, but I'm not going bungee jumping. Not a chance. I'm not putting my faith in that cord and I'm not doing it. I know and I believe that it can hold me up, but I don't believe in it. And I'm not putting my faith in it. I'm not putting my life in the hands of that cord. It's kind of the same thing. Belief in Jesus is very different than belief about Jesus. Verse 46 says, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the second response to seeing who Jesus is, is opposition. It's much the same today. Many people say that they believe Jesus was a great teacher and they respect him, but they do not believe in him. But there's no sitting on the fence with Jesus. Who he is demands a choice be made. C.S. Lewis describes this very well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. And we've seen this as, as we've been going through the book of John, the things that Jesus has said. We saw it in last uh, Sunday's sermon where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say he resurrected. He didn't talk about an action he did. He talked about who he was. And the multiple I am sayings in the Bible, which, which clearly state that Jesus is God. And later, when, he's, when he has the trial 
in front of the chief priests and elders. That's the question they ask him. And he says, I am who you say I am. And then that's the final blow where they want to put him to death. So he, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, someone who would say these things, he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell and a liar. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So we can choose to put our belief in Jesus, or we can choose to oppose him. But regardless of our choices, God's good plan prevails. Regardless of whether we believe in him or oppose him, God's good plan prevails. Let's take a closer look at what the spiritual leader's opposition of Jesus looked like. In verse 47 to 43. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest this year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Here we see the religious leaders, the ones who knew the scriptures, the ones who worked in the temple, the ones who were charged with the spiritual care of the nation of Israel, of God's people, choosing against Jesus, against God's plan. But at the same time that they are choosing against God, God and against Jesus, they are actually enacting God's plan. They freely chose actions against God, but those actions are working for God. They were more concerned about their political standing than the spiritual health of the nation. You see, the Pharisees say here, if he continues to do signs, all the people are going to follow him. They were concerned about their standing. Then they were worried that if all the people follow him, that the Romans would come along and in their own words, take away our place and our nation. They're concerned about themselves. Earlier in the gospel, in chapter 3, when Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus to question him, in his interchange, he states that the Pharisees, and this is in chapter 3, verse 2, that the Pharisees know Jesus is a teacher who comes from God because of all the signs he performs. So their knowledge of scriptures, their knowledge of God, they can see what Jesus is doing and they know he's from God because of what he's doing. But they're still 
letting their concern for their position and for, for their authority concern them more than, than who Jesus actually is, and they oppose him. Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, he was known for being shrewd. So in the Old Testament, the office of the high priest, it was laid out that that was your, your position for life. When you were appointed as the high priest, you stayed the high priest until you passed away. And then your eldest son would be the high priest, and he would be the high priest until he passed away. But in Roman times, in Jesus' times, it was kind of a political uh, position that the Roman leaders actually played with. And many of the high priest's terms were only a year or two because they weren't, they weren't helping the Roman rulers t- keep control of, of the rowdy Jewish people. But Caiaphas was obviously a shrewd high priest because he had a long tenure as high priest. He was actually high priest for 18 years. So he knew how to play the political game. And his option, his suggestion, in his mind, is a purely political option. In verse 49 and 50, he says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. At that point, he's not thinking anything grand. He's not thinking what what we know what Jesus died for, that he died for our sins and to save the whole world. He's, He's thinking that Jesus should die so that we keep our position of power, so that we keep the Romans happy, so they don't come in here and take this away from us. That's what he's thinking. It's the greatest opposition you could have to God, right? To kill him. I bet Satan in that moment thought he had won. Like, think about it for a second. The high priest of God, the high priest in God's temple, has just hatched the plan, the plot, to kill God's son. Right? He's got to think, I've won. I've done it. It's over. It was humanity's darkest moment. Christ, God, came down to earth, entered into our existence as a poor baby, helpless baby, lived among us, taught of God's love, brought healing, brought truth, and we responded by nailing him to the cross. It's humanity's darkest moment. Yet, at the same time, it's God's brightest moment. He sacrificially took that death for us. And John, the writer here, jumps right on that. In verses 51 and 52, talking about Caiaphas' plan, he says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the mystery of God's sovereignty mixing with our free choice. Regardless of our choices or anyone's choices, God's good plan prevails. It's a mystery, one that kind of hurts my brain, right? Like, think about this. Did Caiaphas freely choose to plot against Jesus? Yes. Was it God's plan? Yes. But he freely chose it? Yes. But it was God's plan? Yes. That's, that's God's willpower. Willpower is a strong thing. Have you ever heard that phrase, by the sheer force of will? My wife, 
has, has good, strong willpower. And when we were in, in college in Abbotsford, um, before we were dating, we were, we were friends. Um, but she wanted to change that. She would like that situation to have been different. Unbeknownst to me, my eyes hadn't been open. I hadn't quite noticed her in that way yet. Um, but uh, her family lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and her roommate was driving her to the Vancouver airport one Christmas to fly home at 5 a.m. in the morning, and she was kind of grumbling and complaining about having to do this so early so that Lisa could catch her flight. Lisa told her, don't worry, Janelle. Next year, Ken will be driving me to the airport because we'll be dating. Um, And not only that, but she had a photo of me that she had gotten, and when she arrived at home, she showed it to her parents and got a fridge magnet and put it up on the fridge and and told them to just start praying because she was going to be dating me. And uh, it, took a, it took a little while, but, but God's, God divinely opened my eyes, and I, I saw who, who she was, and, and yes, and, and, and history has taken course, and, and here we are. Um, but that's just the willpower of Lisa, and she's a, she's, a, she's, a, she's a great Christian woman and a beautiful lady, but uh, she's just one person. God's willpower is undeniable. His will will happen. Um, so I've been doing a lot of reading about this, obviously, this, this idea of God's sovereignty and his, and his willpower. And, and there's a lot of arguments on, on the different ways that people can look at this. And the theologians have speculated on this one. And so there's, there's, one, group, there's one group that talks about the fact that, that everything obviously must be already predetermined. Otherwise, how could God make sure that his plan falls out, right, comes, comes to pass? But, there, but there's another side that said, well, wait a minute, that's actually limiting God's intelligence, right? If, if, if God can only make sure his plan comes out, if everything happens, is already predetermined, then his intelligence is actually less than if he's got a plan for the possible contingency of every free choice ever made by any human ever. Like, if you think about the multiplicity of possibilities that unfolds from that, and it's kind of like, you know, how we say now with iPhones, there's an app for that. doesn't matter what choice is ever made. God's got a plan. There's a plan for that. There's a plan for that, right? God is prepared for it all. It's, it, it's, it's, he's in charge. And this is a big idea, and it kind, of, and it kind of hurts, but let's look at some scriptures that kind of help shed some light on this. So at the beginning of our gospel that we're, we're going through right now in John, so John 1, 1 to 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, it says, Jesus speaking, God speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So God's at the beginning of all things, setting it in motion, and God's at the end of all things. He's outside of time, setting everything in motion. But he's also in time. He's also joined us. Because in John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in John 15, 26, and 16, 7, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, promises to send the Holy Spirit, the Helper, when he leaves. So Jesus has actually entered our existence. 
The Holy Spirit is with us and in us, in our existence. So one of the theologians was kind of describing it this way. Hopefully this is helpful. It's a little bit of a word picture. So the idea is that, that God is the master of creation, right? And creation is his well-trained, beloved dog. So he wants to send creation, all of existence, to an end point. He's got the culmination of all history where, where we, we can see that in Revelation 21 and 22, right? It's that, and time is kind of this, this field. So he's sending the dog to the other end of the field. And he has this well-trained dog and he sends it to the other side of the field. But not only is he sending creation to that spot, but he stands at the end of time calling the dog, calling creation to himself. But not only is he at the beginning sending the dog and at the end calling the dog, but he is running alongside the dog the entire way. So if that's helpful at all, hold on to it. If it's not, throw it out. There we are. Yes. So God will bring all the world to its glorious culmination. It's, it's something that we're told in Scripture we can hold on to. In Revelation 21, 1-4, it says, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, with, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In chapter 22, 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me a river, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. It's a beautiful picture of what God has planned for us. And of what is coming. So when we're walking we shouldn't be distracted too much by every little step and every little possible thing that could trip us. But let's keep the grand view of what God's doing. Who Jesus is demands a choice be made. Regardless of our choices, God's good plan prevails. But we are given a choice. The passage today ends with the leaders putting out an order that if anyone sees Jesus, they need to report him so he can be arrested. So they put out fear and intimidation to the crowd to get what they want done. 
The crowds coming to Passover are murmuring and searching for him. Is he going to show up? What's going to happen? But they don't have a full understanding of who he is. Much like today, many people are looking around for Jesus, murmuring about him, but they don't know who he is, but they're interested. And just like the religious leaders who used fear and intimidation to try to sway the crowds to oppose him, our enemy will try to use fear and intimidation to steal our hope so we can't share it. All the, th- all the negative things going on in the world, if our eyes are focused on that, it can steal the hope that we have. And if we don't have our hope that God has given us, then we can't share it if it doesn't fill our lives. I'm going to end by reading another passage from Matthew 14, 25 to 33. It should be familiar. And in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And, when Pete, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. If we let the storms and the wind and the waves of what's going on in the world distract us, from looking at Jesus, we can begin to sink. If we keep our eyes perfectly fixed on him, if we look up and look at God's big picture, the wind and the waves won't matter. We'll still experience pain and hardships, and others will. But we will have the hope that God's good plan prevails. Because it does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for how amazing and wondrous and unlimited and unfathomable you are. We praise you that you have stepped into our existence, that you came to earth, that you died and you rose to give us new life and hope. Thank you that you've chosen us to work alongside with you to share that hope. We ask you for the strength to keep our eyes on you. And we ask you for your spirit to fill us so that we can spread that hope to the world. Amen.